So tonight, as we've talked about, we are kicking off a new sermon series this fall where we're going to go through the book of Revelation. And I'll be honest, when I first began to prepare for this message series, it was the most nervous I'd ever been, just thinking about a message series. If we are honest, Revelation can be really hard to understand. There's some really weird stuff in there. And yet, what I found as I dove deeper and deeper uh, is actually, I don't think I've ever been more excited for a message series. And hopefully that will come out uh, a little bit. Uh, This is a book of hope, and I I pray you all would walk away with that understanding. I was telling Jay uh, Minnick a few weeks ago, uh, he's not here with us tonight. He and his bride, Jane, are traveling overseas right now, just enjoying some time off. And, uh, but a couple weeks ago, as we were talking about this series, I told him I have had so many moments of sermon prep where my jaw has just dropped. And it's not because I suddenly figured out the exact place and time Jesus is going to return or anything like that. It's not going to be in Jackson County at the top of a golden spire, nothing like that. Um, but it's because I've just seen the glory of Jesus lifted up. And there's all these connections and allusions to the Old Testament. And so I've just had some moments of worship during sermon prep. And so I just pray the same would be true of you as we go through this journey through Revelation together. Some of you, maybe if, if you're a first-timer tonight, you're walking in, you're thinking, holy crap, they're going through Revelation. What kind of church did I just get myself into? And it's, it's okay. I think a lot of us young adults have that feeling about the book of Revelation because we have seen this book be abused and misinterpreted and used for political purposes. And so as we think about that book, actually, we're kind of allergic to it. And maybe for some of you, if you're honest, you have not read it in years. The last time you did anything with Revelation is when you read Left Behind, you know, when you were a middle schooler or something, and you just have not touched it since. There's all this weird stuff going on. You've watched people interpret it really weirdly. Maybe your grandma's Sunday school class has spent 20 years going through Revelation. I don't know. You, You may just find some really weird things about this book, and so you may be a little bit scared of it. But also, if you think about it, In these last few years, we have experienced all of this apocalyptic language, um, whether it's surrounding politics and elections, and just every election is the most important election, every vote is the most important thing in the world, or a worldwide pandemic that none of us have ever experienced and hopefully will never have to experience again. You know, even if you're a pretty conservative and cautious person, you may feel like the end of the world is coming. And then, if we're honest... Again, just Revelation can just feel really hard to understand. Um, Maybe we feel really comfortable in other parts of the Bible, but we get to Revelation and it's just like, I have no idea what I just read. And that's okay. My hope tonight is that we would begin a journey where uh, we would just be able to come to a place of understanding together and you would find that the message, the core message of Revelation is actually really clear. And my conviction is that this book, and really this message series, is really about a book that is not one that we should avoid, but it's actually the one we need to hear from right now. And my hope is that by turning to the Apocalypse of John, we'd be able to push through the fear-mongering and the apocalyptic language that we hear in our culture today. My hope is that rather than avoiding a key part of God's Word, we would walk away from this journey together feeling like we can begin to get our arms around how to read and understand the book of Revelation. Once you get past the the wild images and symbols, you come to find that Revelation is a book of supreme hope in Jesus. And so I pray that we would all walk away with that understanding as we go through this journey. So here's what we're going to do tonight. Here's kind of the outline for the evening. 
Um, we are going to begin tonight by talking through some context. I just want to create a basic framework for us to begin to understand how to read Revelation. And this is really important. So we're going to lay a foundation for interpretation and basically just figure out how do we begin to think about reading Revelation. And then we'll close by reading the very first eight verses of the book and just looking at five observations. So we're going to do some context on the front end and then close with some five op observations about the very first eight verses of Revelation. The reason we're going to start with context and laying this foundation for how to understand the book is because if we don't, we will just wildly misinterpret Revelation. In his famous book called Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton once said, Though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision and revelation, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. People have said some really weird things about Revelation, and we don't want to do that. We want to understand the message that John and really Jesus intends. May it not be said of us. Now here's one note I'm going I'm to say as we think about a framework for understanding Revelation. There are many, many, many different views about how to structure Revelation or understand Revelation. There's premillennial dispensationalism, historic premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, as well as idealism, preterism, historicism, futurism, and more. We are not going to talk explicitly about any of those. So if you didn't know what any of those words were, you're in luck. We're not going to talk about any of them. Um, are those views uh, helpful? Will you have to make a decision at some point as you interpret Revelation? Yes. But the book of Revelation is meant to unify God's people, not separate them into tribes. And so here's my goal in this series. As best as I can, I want to preach this in a way so that people of various views on Revelation can jive with, with as much of what I'm saying as possible. Um, there are going to be some passages where I just have to make a decision, but I'm going to try to preach this in such a way that unless you were really informed about the book of Revelation, you wouldn't be clear kind of what views I might be leaning towards, or what combination of views I might be leaning towards. Um, because again, this book is meant to unify us, not divide us at all. And to be honest, along the way in my preparation, my views have, have tweaked. They've, they, they've changed. Um, they, they've shifted a little bit. And that's a good thing. Um, that's part of the fun of doing this. Um, I still think the core message of Revelation is, is clear, but we can debate the secondary issues. Um, during my time prepping for this series, I ran across a debate between several theologians who were discussing their different views of Revelation. And uh, the, the discussion starts pretty friendly, and then it starts to get more and more heated as they get into their different views. And finally, one of the guys, just in exasperation, looks at one of his quote-unquote opponents, and he says, but what if you are wrong about your view of Revelation? To which the other pastor, Sam Storms, looks at him, and he says, I'm willing to change my theology in midair. <laughs> and what he means, <laughs> what he means is that, okay, at the end of the day, the secondary details do not save us. But the core message that Jesus is our hope in all things, that, that's the message we need to understand. And I'm the same way. It, if it comes out that a different view is the right view, I will gladly change my view on my way to meet Jesus. And hopefully you guys have the same attitude. The core message of Revelation is clear. We can debate the secondary details, but the core message is clear. Okay. So now that we just said a few words of preface, let's talk through this foundation of interpreting Revelation. Anytime you are reading a book of Scripture, you should always begin by asking yourself two questions. 
Two questions. Some of you, I see the smiles, already know where I'm going. If you've taken Encounter, taught by Andy Lee, we just kicked it off last night with a new crew. Uh, it's been great. Uh, in Encounter, which is kind of our Bible interpretation class here at Pleasant Valley, there's two questions. What did this mean to God's people back then? And what does this mean for God's people today? Let me say that one more time. What did this mean to God's people back then? And what does this mean for God's people today? You don't need a seminary degree to be able to understand the Bible. You don't have to know Greek and Hebrew or Aramaic to understand the Bible. It's good for us to know that. Do those things help? Yes. Am I glad I went to seminary? Yes. But at the end of the day, you don't need a seminary degree to begin to understand the Bible. Start with these two questions. Think about the first question. What did this mean to God's people back then? This question reminds us that every single part of the Bible was written to an original audience. Every part of the Bible was written to an original audience. And in the case of Revelation, it was originally written to the seven churches mentioned in the latter half of chapter 1 that we'll hear more about next week. And these churches existed sometime in the first century AD in the Roman province of Asia, which is modern-day western Turkey. Revelation is probably written as a traveling letter that was passed around to these various churches. And don't worry, we'll talk more about the context of the churches in the coming weeks, because we're going to do a different message for each of the letters to the seven churches, because there's so much there for us to learn. But we need to remember that there's an original audience here. Revelation was written to historic original audience, and that original audience is not us. It was somebody else a couple thousand years ago. So why this is important is because our temptation sometimes, if we don't remember that question, is to read Revelation as if every passage is talking about some event happening right now in America. Which, if you think about it, would be ridiculous because America did not even exist 2,000 years ago. So I know that may seem like a very controversial thing to say, depending on some of the circles you may have grown up in, but let, just basic logic would tell us that... Uh, most of the things in Revelation are not just some clear corollary to uh, what's happening at this very moment in American history. Um, because the original audience would have no understanding of what we're doing today. Doesn't mean things don't apply to us. We'll talk about that. But we just, we need to start by asking, what did this mean to the original audience? We have to be able to read Revelation in such a way that would make sense to the original audience. And this will lead us to the second question. What does this mean for God's people today? God wrote Revelation to encourage the church throughout the ages. So in light of what the book meant to the original audience, what can we learn today? In light of what the book meant for the original audience, what can we learn today? Keeping those two questions in mind will kind of form guardrails for us so we don't go too far off one side or the other as we interpret Revelation. The next piece of key information that we need to understand in order to interpret Revelation rightly is we need to understand the genre of the book. For some of you, this just sounds like English class again. Maybe you're English teachers, so you already know where I'm going. But we need to understand the genre of the book. A genre is the type of writing that something is, such as a novel or science fiction or satire or poetry or more. We have to understand the genre in order to understand the book. If we misunderstand the genre, we will misunderstand the book and interpret it in wild ways. Just a really clear modern example on this. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Babylon Bee. Okay, quite a few of us. Maybe you know where I'm going. 
when the Babylon Bee first launched and they would tweet things out or they would write articles, it's satire. It's a satirical site. It's not real stuff. It's playing off of things that are happening in real life, but it's not real. Yet people didn't realize that, so you would have people unironically sharing these things on Facebook and Twitter as if these articles were real, and it spread all of this disinformation. And so it's because people didn't understand the genre of writing that Babylon Bee is. It's satire. Now, there is a Twitter account called Not the Bee, which shows real stuff that feels like it should have been written by the Babylon Bee, but that's a different thing. That's real, factual stuff. So we have to understand the genre of the writing that we are reading, otherwise we will misinterpret it. Same is true of Revelation. We have to understand its genre. So what genre of book is Revelation? Well, we can see it from the very first verse. Revelation is apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. Verse 1 says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. The very first word in the book of Revelation, if you were to read it in Greek, is apocalypsis. And this is where we get the word apocalypse from. Apocalyptic literature was prominent in ancient writings, but has not really been consistently used for about 1,800 years. And if you, if you go back and look at some of the historical writings, a lot of Jewish historical writings are in the genre of apocalyptic literature. And so, you know, when we see the word apocalypse, we're thinking end times, wild beast, wars, and things like that. And while those things are often included in apocalyptic literature, uh, at the end of the day, that's not exhaustive as to the purpose of apocalyptic literature. Really, if you think about it, apocalypse... That word literally just means to reveal or unveil. The word apocalypse just means to reveal or unveil. And so the purpose of apocalyptic writings are to reveal things, to make them clear. So the grand irony of often the way we treat Revelation is that uh, for us, Revelation is really unclear when actually it was written to be clear. It was literally written as a a revelation, as, as an unveiling of God's truth. But because the genre of apocalyptic literature is so old, we really struggle to understand it. We're not used to it. You could think of something similar happening if we tried to show a modern genre, like the novel. Believe it or not, novels are actually pretty modern in the scope of literature. If you were to show a modern novel to Julius Caesar, he would have no idea how to interpret it, and he would probably read it as historical fact because he didn't understand the genre. Same would be true of us. If we have not interacted with apocalyptic literature, we would read everything as if it was just literal, pure, historic fact. And we would miss the message of the symbolism and the imagery that is at play. Apocalyptic writings major on all of this great imagery and symbolism. They use pictures and numbers and other things to get across a message. So rather than explaining their message outright, they do it through imagery. And believe it or not, we're actually pretty familiar with this concept. We just may not, we may not realize it. We may not be familiar with it in writings, but we are familiar with it in paintings. Um, Paintings will often use symbolism to get across a message. In college, I studied architecture. Before I became a pastor, I, I worked at an architecture firm. And when I was getting my undergrad degree in architecture at Mizzou, uh, I had to study a lot of art history classes. um, I loved it. And along the way, in this education in art history, part of what you're taught is what do the different symbols in paintings mean? 
And once I began to grasp what these different symbols mean across the ages, these paintings came alive to me. I mean, maybe for some, if you've ever been to the Nelson and you don't have kind of an art history background, you look at a painting, you're like, oh, that's really pretty. And okay, you move on to the next one. You're there for a couple seconds. And after, you know, a couple rooms, you're like, oh, okay, I think it's ready for lunch. But if you've had some kind of education on what that symbolism means, you could sit there and stare at those paintings for hours. And, and I do this. I, I'm, I know I'm weird, but there was a day where it's just like I had a really stressful week. I think Carly had a wedding or she's doing something. And I literally brought my AirPods. I put on classical music and I sat there and I would just sit at a painting for like 15 minutes and stare at it and, and look at the message. And I go to the next one. And finally, somebody's like, are you OK? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Um, but you can find so much of the message by understanding the symbolism. So just as an example, if you were going to look at a medieval kind of painting or sculpture or art or things like that that are portraying biblical themes, if you see a winged man, that represents Matthew. If you see a winged lion, that represents Mark. A winged ox or a bull refers to Luke. An eagle refers to John. And a man holding keys refers to Peter. Once you know that, suddenly you're able to identify things all over those paintings and the sculptures but you have to understand the symbolism in order to understand the message. Without understanding that, you will misunderstand the message, and the same is true of Revelation. John wants us to see the imagery so we can understand it. In fact, the verb to see is used 52 different times across the book of Revelation. The verb to see is used 52 times across the, uh, the book of Revelation. John wants us to see with our ears by hearing the imagery that he's describing throughout Revelation. And he wants to see it in our minds and then understand the message of it all. So, we're not really meant to take this wild imagery as a literal telling of exactly how something looks. Because that would be to miss the whole message. So, for example, in Revelation chapter 5, we're going to read about a lion, lamb figure. And if you were to just take that description of this lion-lamb figure literally, one, it would be nonsensical because it's not clear, is, is, it, is it all lion? Is it all lamb? Is it half lion, half lamb? It's a slaughtered lamb. What, what does it look like? Sometimes it's a lion, sometimes it's a lamb. The point is not to take it literally. The point is that it is alluding to Jesus, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the sacrificial lamb that was slain for our sins. Once you understand that, the message of the passage becomes beautiful. But yet, if we are so focused on just literally taking everything, we'll miss the point, and we're left with some really weird pictures we don't know what to do with. So we have to understand the imagery to understand the message. That's how we will understand Revelation. So, Revelation, as a genre, overall, is apocalyptic literature. But here's where it gets a little bit twisted. Here's where we have to have some nuance. Revelation is not just apocalyptic literature. It is also prophecy and letter. So the whole of Revelation is apocalyptic, but it is also a prophecy and a letter. And I'll explain how these three things work together. But let's talk about Revelation as a prophecy. Within the broader genre of apocalyptic literature, John also writes as Revelation to a prophecy. And we see this explicitly in verse 3 when John says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. Now, 
Sometimes in church circles, we can assume that the main point of prophecy is to tell us what is happening in the future. But really, that's actually not quite right. Prophecy in the Bible is not so much foretelling the future, so much as speaking the word of God into the present. Future events may be foretold in prophecy, but they're foretold to us so that it might change how we live our lives right now. So just as an example, we all know uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, and, and the great plans that, that God has for us, and, and that's on every coffee cup in every Christian bookstore. But actually, if you were to look at the context of that passage, it's this beautiful prophetic explanation from God, where God's people have been taken into captivity by Babylon. And so here they are, they're saying, God, how are we going to get to the promised land? How are you going to save us? What is going to happen? And the prophecy God gives them is this. He says, I will save you one day. I will do some amazing things. I'm even going to make a new covenant with you, he'll talk about in a few chapters. But in the short term, I want you, for the next 70 plus years, I want you to plant gardens, build houses, give away your daughters in marriage, all for the betterment of the city. Get settled in. So God is telling them what he's going to do in the future to impact what he's going to want, going to want them to do in the present. So prophecy is often used to impact how we live in the present. And the same is going to be true of Revelation. It should impact how we live in the present. The point of Revelation and the prophecy in it is not simply to tell us what's going to happen in the future with Jesus' return, but rather it's to help us understand what will happen in the future so it changes how we live in this present moment. So, Revelation then is apocalyptic literature, but it is also prophecy. And then finally, Revelation is a letter. That's the third genre. Revelation is apocalyptic, it's prophetic, and it is a letter. We see this clearly in verses 4 and 5, which say this, John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Not only does John's introduction of himself and, and his original audience in the seven churches make it clear this is a letter, but we can also see it's a letter by John's greeting, grace and peace. For many of you that are familiar with Paul's letters in the New Testament, he starts many of his letters this way, grace and peace. This is a typical greeting in the Bible. And we can even tell that Revelation is a letter by turning all the way to the very last verse. Revelation twenty two twenty one. John says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. And this is a standard conclusion and farewell for ancient Christian letters. So, Revelation is apocalyptic, it's prophetic, and it is a letter. And in order to understand it, we have to combine these three, these three things together. So how do those different genres work together? Revelation is a letter written by the Apostle John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit meant to help the church know how to have hope in God and live in the last days before Jesus' return. Revelation is written as a prophecy to help the church begin to understand what is to come so that they would know of the victory of Jesus over all evil so that they might trust him now no matter what comes. And Revelation is written as apocalyptic literature, which helps us understand that the imagery in the book is not meant to be taken perfectly literally throughout, but is rather meant to convey a message of hope. 
The apocalyptic images in, uh, of Revelation keep us from trying to assume that every event in the book is explicitly talking about precise historical events in our day. Instead, the apocalyptic imagery is meant to be mystical enough to generally apply to the church throughout the ages, as Revelation is meant for every Christian throughout all the generations of the church. So that's how those three genres kind of come together. And they actually work hand in hand. Once we understand that, we can begin to understand how to read and interpret the book of Revelation. When we understand how those genres work together, we see God's tender care for us in writing a letter specifically to his people in the church throughout the ages to help us trust in Jesus in the face of persecution and trial. And ultimately, in summary, the message of Revelation is that Jesus wins. Satan and evil are defeated forevermore, and therefore we can trust in God no matter what comes. One of the best statements about the book of Revelation that I heard in in prep came from a pastor in London named Andrew Wilson. He says this, If you walk away from Revelation fearing someone or something else more than God, you have missed the entire point of the book. If you walk away from Revelation fearing someone or something else more than God, you have missed the entire point of the book. So many of us know folks that obsess over Revelation, and they're often the most fearful people we know. And I would just argue, I think they're missing the point of the book. Of course there are scary things in Revelation, of course. But we should walk away trusting that God is greater than them all, having fear and worship of him. And my prayer is that we would walk away with that sense as we go through this book. So I've just given you a lot of context. We're actually going to dive in now, and we're just going to do some really quick reflections. But before we do that, I want to give you a chance just to breathe, let your mind rest, and I want you to talk about two questions at your table. Two questions at your table. What are you hoping to get out of our Revelation series? And what questions do you have about Revelation that you want us to touch on? So what are you hoping to get out of our Revelation series? And what questions do you have about Revelation that you want us to touch on? Get the names of the people at your table, talk about those questions, and then we will close out with those five observations. Now here's how we're going to kind of close our time. We are going to just briefly touch on five observations from Revelation 1, 1 to 8. And so here's what I want us to do. Um, If you've been with us on Sunday mornings at PV, you've seen Merle do this. I actually want us to stand while I read these eight verses. And this is not some mystical thing, but I want us to actually have a a notion of reverence. And I'll explain why in just a moment. This is Revelation 1, 1 to 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom 
priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. May God bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. <clears throat> so we are, we are going to take a little bit of time, and we're just going to briefly look at five observations from those eight verses. Five observations from those eight verses. Observation number one, Revelation is meant to show us what will soon take place. Revelation is meant to show us what will soon take place. And we see this from verse 1. It literally says, The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Two questions come to mind from this. One, does this mean that Jesus' return and the events of Revelation could happen at any moment now? And then question number two, Revelation was written 2,000 years ago. If the events of this book haven't happened yet, how can John say they will soon take place? The answer to those questions kind of goes hand in hand. But let's take the the last question first. How can John say that Revelation uh, and the events of the book will soon take place if it it was written 2,000 years ago? At this point, we need to remember that God's time is not our time. God's time is not our time. Psalm chapter 90 verse 4 says, A thousand years in God's sight are like a day that has just gone by. A thousand years in God's sight are like a day that has just gone by. For us as finite human beings, a hundred years feels like an eternity. But for our eternal God, 2,000 years is like the blink of an eye. His time is not our time. And that being said, to answer the first question then, Jesus actually truly could return at any moment. That's not fear-mongering. That's just the truth. Jesus could come back before this message is over. Maybe some of you are like, make it happen. Uh, Jesus really could return at any moment. Believe it or not, we are living in the last days. We are living in the end times. Some of you maybe weren't guessing that I would say that, but it's true. We're living in the end times, but the end times have existed for 2,000 years. Since Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, it ushers in a new age, and we are therefore then in the last days. And I believe that the reason God doesn't tell us the precise moment that Jesus will return, you know, it's been 2,000 years since Revelation was written. Why doesn't God just tell us the precise moment Jesus is coming back? The reason is that if we knew the precise moment Jesus was going to return, we would procrastinate all over the place in our Christian walks. Let's just be honest. A lot of us are not that far removed from high school, and, and many of us, if we're in college, maybe you're still doing this now, when you know the due date of a project, many of us do not start until the night before. Let's just be honest about it. And I see the looks going around. It's true. And I did the same thing in college a lot of times. So if God tells us exactly when Jesus is going to come back, we would be tempted to just kick back and say, you know what, I'll I'll take care of my holiness later. I'll share the gospel later. I've got a little time. But by us not knowing the day or the hour or the place 
of Jesus' return, we are forced to have a gospel urgency. That's why we prayed this at the beginning. Jesus could return at any moment. So we need to go out in the world and we need to fight sin with all we've got, share the gospel with all we've got, love God with all we've got, because we are not promised another second, another breath. We need to have that gospel urgency. Revelation is not meant to be a precise and detailed telling of the exact date of Christ's return. Rather, it's meant to be a general handbook for Christians living in persecution and trial throughout the ages. When people try to precisely predict the exact timing of Jesus' return and other end times events, they end up looking foolish and ridiculous. So, this, and this is real. There was a guy, I won't give his name, but in 1988, he, he was a well-known author. He wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. And then when that didn't happen, he wrote another book called The Rapture Report about 89 reasons why the rapture would happen in 1989. And that still didn't happen. Revelation is not meant to give us this exact detailed kind of decoded thing so that we know the the exact time and place of Jesus' return. Remember, Jesus himself, Jesus himself tells us that no one knows the hour of his return except for the Father. So when we think we are, are perfect in our predictions about the end times, we just look stupid and ignorant, and we look arrogant. If Jesus doesn't know it, why would we expect to know it? And I, I would just say that I think sometimes we can get so lost in trying to decode all of that stuff that we just end up missing the main message of the gospel. We spend all of our time trying to decode stuff, and we miss the burden of the Great Commission that's saying, you need to have this gospel urgency now because there may never be another moment. How foolish would you feel if Jesus returned while you were sitting there with your whiteboard with all these zigzag lines trying to find the exact time and place and you were not sharing the gospel? May our predictions be damned so that people are not. We need to have a gospel urgency. That is the reason God doesn't tell us the exact time and place of the return. And so that it applies to every generation of the church throughout. We need to have this gospel urgency. Observation number two. Revelation is a blessing for those who read and hear and obey it. You see this in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. Think about that. Think about that. You are blessed because you are reading and hearing the words of Revelation. And you will be blessed if you obey those words. That's why we stood together, the sense of reverence for God's word. We are blessed by studying this book together. These words are sacred, and not because they have some secret about the end times. They're sacred because they come from Jesus through John to help us see God's love and care for us in the last days. May we treasure up these words that we are going to read over these coming weeks so that we would love and trust God more. And point number three, observation number three. Revelation is full of the Old Testament. Revelation is full of the Old Testament. I thought about including this one in the context, but decided to put it here. In order to understand Revelation, you have to have some understanding of the Old Testament. Believe it or not, 70%, of all verses in Revelation allude to at least one Old Testament passage. 70%. 
I would argue that one of the reasons we fail to understand Revelation is because we don't understand the Old Testament. It's one of the reasons we are committed to expository preaching here at 20-somethings and going through the Old Testament is because we believe the Old Testament matters. Jesus treasured the Old Testament, and John, and really Jesus through John, treasures the Old Testament here in Revelation. For me, one of the most fun parts about prepping for this series was seeing all of these Old Testament allusions and chasing them out in a way I just never had before. There were so many times where I would go to a coffee shop to do sermon prep, and I'd tell Carly, I'm going to read first three or four chapters of Revelation today, and I'd get through like four verses. And it's because I just was having so much fun chasing out all these Old Testament allusions I'd never caught before. And the deal is, once you go back and read the Old Testament allusion, then the actual passage in Revelation makes, makes way more sense. There are a number of passages in this book that on the surface make no sense. You go back and read the Old Testament allusion, you're like, oh, this is so clear. This is so clear. And I, I, hope, I hope that will happen to us over the course of this series. We're going to reference so many Old Testament passages. Even just in the first eight verses that we read, there are scores of Old Testament allusions. And there are so many that at one point I contemplated uh, in breaking this message into two just so we could focus on the Old Testament allusions, but I thought, I want to finish this before Jesus returns, if that's possible. So we're not going to break it up into two. And so I'm just going to kind of wet your palate just a little bit, just with an example of an Old Testament allusion here. If you were to, to spend all the time chasing all the different references out, you would find allusions in these first eight verses to Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 13, Zechariah 14, Genesis 12, Psalm 89, and more and more and more. There are so many Old Testament allusions here. And the original audience would have picked up on all of these. But again, let me just give you one. The reference to Jesus as the firstborn son in Revelation 1.5 corresponds to Revelation 1.7. You say, how so? It's because of an Old Testament connection. Revelation 1.7 says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. One of the Old Testament passages that is referenced in Revelation 1.7 is Zechariah 12.10 and following. Zechariah 12 speaks of the people mourning over the firstborn son that they pierced. And continuing this narrative, Zechariah 14.9 says that on that day the Lord will be king over all the earth. And then Psalm 89 comes in and incorporates this theme of the firstborn king made to be king over all the earth in verse 27. And over the course of Psalm 89, we see that even though God's people are unfaithful to him, his faithful love shall remain on them forever, and they will praise him for it. Revelation 1-7 is picking up on all of this and more to show us God's purposes and prophecies and love for us. He's showing us that they're fulfilled in Jesus. Our sin put Jesus on the cross, and when he returns, we will all mourn for our sin that caused him to be pierced for our salvation. And yet, despite our sin and unfaithfulness to God, his faithful love remains on us in the church as his people. So is Revelation 1-7 talking about the return of Christ? Yes. But it's talking about so much more. We can only understand that deeper message when we understand the allusions to the Old Testament. Okay, I'm going to stop there. We, we can talk about so many more, but we'll, we'll move to point four. 
Revelation is all about God. Revelation is all about God. You and I are not the main focus of the book of Revelation. God is. The whole book is about him. Verse 1 shows us that the book of Revelation is the revelation that God gave Jesus to give to John and Christ's servants. And in the greeting of the letter of Revelation in verses 4 and 5, we see that the whole letter ultimately comes from and is for the glory of the three members of the Trinity. It says, Grace and peace to you from the one who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then verses 5 and 6 show us that the book of Revelation is dedicated to God and his glory. To him who loves us and set us free from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Then verses 4 and 8 remind us that God is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and he's the God of all time. Verse 8, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation is all about God. And when we try to make it primarily about something else, whether it's what will happen in the last days, or something about heaven, or hell, or Jesus' return, we dishonor God and we miss the whole point of the book. Of course, Revelation talks about those things at some level, but the book's primary focus is the glory of God because it is only when we see and savor the glory of God that we will trust him in the face of persecution and trials in the last days. As we said earlier, if you walk away from Revelation fearing something or someone else more than God, you have missed the entire point of the book. Revelation is about God. Last point. Revelation is all about the love of God. Revelation is all about the love of God. Verses 5 and 6 tell us this beautiful truth. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory, the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Think about how amazing that passage is. Here we have, at the beginning of a letter where God is writing to his people, sharing of the many things to come, many of which are scary and mysterious, we have God telling his people about how much he loves them. So if you're afraid about what you might encounter in Revelation, the imagery kind of freaks you out. Take a breath and reflect that God starts this letter by affirming to you he loves you more than he could ever possibly imagine. Again, so many people just wrongfully obsess about the wrong parts of Revelation and they end up living in fear when God actually writes this book for us so that we would be able to trust him and rest in his love for us. Revelation is all about the love of God. God reassures us of his great love for us, shown most clearly here in the cross and in the gospel. And he shows us that so that we would trust him in the persecution and pain of the last days. See, the love of God is not just amazing because of his infinite amount, or because of its infinite amount, but it's amazing because of the infinite nature of its origin. 
God's love for us is infinite, but he himself is infinite. And think about it. The God who loves you is the God who spoke the universe into existence. He has all authority in all of the universe. He is the one who has authority over all rulers and leaders. He's the one who sets up kings and takes down kings. Our God who loves us transcends all of time and space reality. He knows and numbers each of the, of the trillions of stars of the universe. His majesty is so great that the heavens declare his glory and the rocks can't help but cry out in praise. His com- he commands nature with such authority that he healed the sick simply by speaking words many miles away. He makes chains break and demons flee. He's the one upon whom sinless angels could not gaze and the prophets hid their eyes from as they fell down in awe. He rules the winds and the waves and they obey his every command. He is so great that not even a leaf falls without his knowledge. And he will come again to defeat death and Satan and all evil once and for all. And when he returns and all of humanity sees his unspeakable splendor, they will bow their knees and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the God who loves you. That's the God who wrote this book for you. And it is a reminder for us that no matter what comes, no matter what scary things we could encounter, we can know that none of those things are greater than God. He created everything. He is going to make everything right. Satan and evil and death cannot defeat him. And so in God, there is nothing for us to fear. We can rest in his love. And this God loves you so much that he would send his very own son to die, to pay the price you deserve to pay for your sins, and then to rise again up from the dead to defeat death and sin and Satan and all the powers of hell, so that if you and I would believe in him, we could be saved and experience his love forever. Because remember, if, if we don't love God ourselves, we don't have faith for him, this message of Revelation actually is scary. It's the most horrifying news you could ever hear. But if you have put your faith in Jesus, this is the best news in all the universe. So if you're someone that has never given your life to Jesus, there's nothing more that we would love to do than talk to you about that. I would love to have a conversation with you after this message so that you could experience the love of God and have the hope of revelation. So as we embark on this journey together to go through the book of Revelation, may we trust in the God who loves us more than we could ever imagine and would we walk away with hope together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for giving us this incredible book. We pray that as we go on, you would bolster our confidence in you. Help us fall deeper in love with you. Help us look more and more like Jesus. Would you deepen this community, God? Would you make this community one that is resilient? Because we have spent time just relishing and loving the hope of Jesus. And people would see our fearlessness as we walk out into the world together. God, I pray that you would protect us from the attacks of the evil one that get us to despair, that cause us to forget your love for us and your victory for us. And God, would you help us fall deeper in love with Jesus, that we would proclaim the gospel with all the world so that the world may have the hope of this great book. So God, we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, the one who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. 
To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.